Good morning again. Remember that Coca-Cola slogan? Some of you old folks like me may remember. The real thing, you know, it's the real thing. Well, I found a list. I've shortened it for you guys, but a list of things about Coca-Cola. To clean a toilet, pour a can of the real thing in, let it sit for an hour, then flush. The citric acid in the Coke removes stains from the porcelain. Hmm. It will also clean road haze from your windshield. The active ingredient in Coke is phosphoric acid, and it will dissolve a nail in about four days. To carry the concentrated syrup, commercial trucks must display the hazardous materials sign. The distributors of Coke have been using it to clean their engines in the trucks for about 30 years. And we drink this stuff. <laughs> now, most of that may be some urgent urban legends or, you know, maybe it's exaggerated. But speaking of the real thing, we're starting a new series of messages today. And we're calling it Keeping It Real. One thing we really want to do here at Cornerstone is to keep things real. We want to be people who can be described as real we want our teaching and preaching to be conversational and real. We don't want to have to pretend to be somebody we're not. So we want to live that out by identifying ourselves as a real church, doing real life, and following a real God. Interesting title for today's message. This is church. It's interesting because... It's the same question that heaven and earth have been asking for thousands of years. Throughout history, certain religious groups have been gathering together, doing what religious groups do when they come together. They sing songs, they pray prayers, sermons are preached, creeds are said. And after a religious gathering, people often say, now that was church. We really nailed it today. At the same time those comments are being made, there's an assessment going on up in heaven as well. And there's a question being asked there. Was that really church? Was that what we had in mind when we conceived the notion of faith communities gathering all over the planet? And sometimes there's a little discrepancy between what the assessment in heaven is and what it is from people here on earth. I want to quickly go through three examples in the Bible where there must have been a perplexing question up in heaven. This is church. Let me go through them. Playing church would be a good name for an illustration in the Old Testament book of Amos. There was a group of religious people who were gathering regularly they were singing and praying and preaching and doing church things. But all the time they were doing that, they were ignoring the poor and dominating the weak. They were at work doing selfish business tactics. They were tolerating all kinds of spiritual hypocrisy. Their relationships were hollow and put on. And God spoke to that religious group. And here's what he said. 
I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. They were saying, fire the band. When was the last time God asked when you sang to me? The worshipers were saying, yeah, that church event was about a 9.8. But heaven was saying, unacceptable. We can't stand what you're doing. Those are some pretty strong words, aren't they? Make me kind of cringe a little bit. Worthless fires is what we could call another example in the book of Malachi. This is where the church leaders thought they were coming up with a very cost-effective idea. God had told these people for centuries that whenever they were going to celebrate the cleansing of their wrongdoings, they were to go out into the herds and pick the finest, healthiest lamb in the flock. And they were to bring that lamb to the altar of God and sacrifice it. They were, this was a picture, it was a foreshadowing of when Christ would come and sacrifice himself on the cross. But some really smart and really cheap leaders on the church staff started to think, why should we use our prize lambs when we're just going to give them to God and kill them on an altar? So they decided that they'd find the worst lamb in the flock, a sick lamb, or one that was so close to death that he was leaning against a fence post ready to keel over. They'd say, oh, this one's perfect. We'll give it to God because it's worthless to us. God says, isn't it wrong to offer animals that are blind, crippled, or sick? Just try giving those animals to your governor. That certainly won't please him and make him want to help you. I wish someone would lock the doors of my temple so you would stop wasting time building fires, worthless fires, on my altar. These strong words are there to show us that the way we practice church really does matter. The way we do church at Cornerstone really, really matters. The sting is one more example in the New Testament. This was when a few leaders asked Jesus to come be the guest speaker at their synagogue. The Pharisees wanted to find a way to discredit Jesus because his Nielsen ratings were really going up and he was attracting a lot of people and they were jealous. So before the service got underway, these guys bring in a man with a physical defect, a withered hand. No doubt this was an ailment that kept him from meaningful employment and probably embarrassed him his whole life. The Pharisees find this guy and they say, yeah, perfect. They bring him in and give him a front row seat because they knew Jesus had a heart for healing anyone with physical afflictions. Human suffering affected the heart of Jesus so much that every time he could, he'd rescue someone from it. The Pharisees had some addendums to the scriptures regarding how much work should be done on the Sabbath day. Probably can figure out where I'm going with this. Everything is set up. Jesus at the pulpit, 
the guy with the withered hand sitting up front. The mob was betting that Jesus would notice the guy and heal him, and they could accuse him of doing too much work on the Sabbath. Anticipation was in the air. As Jesus gets up to speak, he sees the withered hand on that guy, and he sees the Pharisees foaming at the mouth, and he gets it. It's a sting. It says in Mark 3, 5 that he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to that man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. It's like Jesus was saying, are you kidding me? You call this church? Is what's happening here pleasing to heaven? You don't care about this man's medical condition. You don't care about his life or his family. You don't care about his daily struggle. You don't give a flying rip about his eternity. There was no expectancy in that room looking forward to the Father's presence. There was no eagerness to hear the truth applied to a human life. There was no desperation to have God touch a human heart. Jesus would have said, this is not church. He'd say, if this was church, there would be lots of people here with physical needs. There'd be people here who are far from God. And there would be a core of believers who had invited them and who would be praying and hoping that they would find faith in God. There would be people truly connected with each other, doing life together. There would be evidence of the Holy Spirit because the people would be using their gifts and their talents to serve each other. That would be church. Jesus did heal that man, but church ended early that day. It makes me wonder How much of this stuff is still going on in churches all around the globe? Now, I offer those three examples not because I want us to feel bad about our church. I only want to raise an awareness that from God's perspective, church matters. It really matters. Now, you can tell I'm a little passionate about this. And here's the reason. I grew up in a church in Tampa, Florida that I would not classify as a great church. I'm not saying anything bad about the individuals there. I'm just saying it was a dead church. It was stuck in mind-numbing tradition. It was locked in to formalities and rituals that made very little sense to most of the people. I went there for the first 18 years of my life. And to my knowledge, no one ever found faith for the first time in this church. When people fought with each other, and that happens in churches, believe it or not. But when people fought in that church, they'd never reconciled. They just sat on opposite sides of the church and stayed mad. Or they left the church and stayed mad. There wasn't much spiritual growth. People never talked about becoming Christ-like. I never heard bold prayers, and I'm guessing 
not a lot of answered prayer. I think if I ever invited a friend to that church, he would have left further from God than when he walked in. So when I was ready to get out of high school, I was ready to get out of church too. It wasn't real to me. I didn't want that in my future. Well, you can imagine the shock factor I experienced when years later, I was in a conference. I had become a Christian. By the way, just because you go to church for 18 years doesn't mean you're a Christian. Okay? I was so far from God. But after I did get saved, I'm at this conference. And I heard this Bible professor speaking. And he was speaking passionately about his love for the church. Here's what he said. There's nothing like the appeal and the power of the local church when the local church is working right. Now I was asking, this is church? I never felt that way about church. He read from the second chapter of Acts. And he said this with conviction. He said, there was once a community of believers radically devoted to God. Whatever God told them to do, they did. Whenever he told them to go out on a limb, they went out on a limb to see where that was taking them. That same community of believers developed a radical connection with one another. They shared life together and they stopped pretending in their relationships. They discovered what it was to know and be known, to love and be loved, to serve and be served. They became just like family. In that church family, bold prayers were prayed and answered. And the mighty hand of God fell on it so regularly that people just got used to standing back and watching in awe. That same church cared so much for people outside the faith that they spread the faith creatively and compellingly at the risk of losing their own lives. Then the professor looked at us and he said this, now you answer me this question. If such a church existed on the planet earth in the first century, tell me why one can't exist today. Has God lost his stuff? Is the Bible no longer powerful? Is the spirit asleep? Why can't it exist today? And here's how he ended up. He said, there's no good reason. It should happen. It must happen. But somebody has to change their course of life. And I ask you to set your plans aside and give yourself to the call of God. When you get to the end of your life, and you look back, you won't regret it. Man, what do you do when somebody says something like that? (laughs) i tell you what I did. I excused myself. I went into the men's bathroom. I locked myself in one of the stalls. I sat on the toilet seat, and I bawled my eyes out. I knew that if... I gave myself to something less than that dream, I'd probably regret it the rest of my life. Now, let's fast forward about 30 years. You're that old, David? Just a few months ago, we formed what we called a design team here at Cornerstone. 
Actually, we formed two teams, a design team and then an alignment team. In fact, if you were on either one of those teams, would you just stand for a second? I won't make you do anything. Just stand if you were on one of those teams. Okay, yeah, there's a few here. There were some at the early service. Okay, thanks. You can sit down. I won't have you sing. <laughs> well, on that design team, we ask each other some tough questions. Questions like, so what's church supposed to be about? Is this church? Why are we here? Are we doing what God really wants us to do? We looked at all of our preconceived notions of how we thought church should be, and we just said, you know, why don't we just put this on the altar of God, so to speak, and, and you know, see what's there. We admitted that uh, there wasn't really just one way to do church. We also knew that we didn't really know exactly what we were supposed to do. We all read a book together. That book encouraged us to simplify things as much as possible. And by putting it all on the altar, we wanted God to burn up what shouldn't be there and just tell us what he wanted us to do. Maybe we would hear from heaven. Maybe we'd hear heaven say, okay, Cornerstone, this is church. This is what I want you to do. Well, the first thing we stumbled onto was something that immediately lowered our stress level. There were two assumed tasks that put a lot of pressure on us to do work for God that God never really intended. First, we were trying to mature people spiritually. We were trying to mold them and change them. Second thing, we were trying to make the church grow. We were, you know, what's the magic formula to make more people come? we looked at some very familiar passages of Scripture. And I posed two questions to the design team. The first question was, can we transform or change people into the image of Jesus Christ? The second question, did Jesus tell us to build or grow the church? Here are a few verses from our findings. We are being transformed That's called the passive tense of that verb there. That means we don't do that to ourselves. We don't do it to anybody else. It's being done to us. We are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory over and over, more and more, which comes from the Lord. He's the one doing it. Here's another verse. Paul planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God made it grow. So neither who neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. It's a metaphor about the church. When the first church, the early church was being birthed, it says in Acts 2:47, every day the church's number grew as God added to their number. And then Peter and Jesus were talking one day. Peter comes up with all this faith, and he really believes in Jesus. And Jesus says, it's on that rock, that kind of faith, that's what I will build my church on. And Jesus said, I'll build it so strong that hell itself can't stop it. So the pressure was off. (laughs) We don't need to worry about changing people or building the church. Funny thing, those are probably the two most popular things churches end up trying to do. 
But that's God's job, not ours. Well, that causes us to ask an obvious third question. If we don't build the church, if we don't change people, then what did Jesus tell us to do? Did he give us a mission? What is it? Here it is. Jesus said that he's got all authority in heaven and earth. So he's pretty qualified to tell us what to do. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice in this particular spot, it doesn't say baptizing them in water. It says it's baptizing them, immersing them, pouring over them everything about the name of God and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. That passage is known as the great commission. If you ever wonder what the mission of the church is, that's it. And we boil that all down to one very simple statement. Our mission basically is to make disciples. It's all about discipleship. But wait, if God is the one to transform people, then how do we make disciples? Well, there's one little word in the Great Commission that gave us a clue. It's the word make, and therefore go and make disciples. In the original Greek, the word make is not even there, and the word disciple is a verb. The word make is a Latin word that was added later because they wanted to really get the essence of what this translation was. It carries with it the idea that one would be enrolled in something or that a person is being taught, like being enrolled in a college course. In other words, we were to provide a process in which we could enroll people where they can learn how to follow Jesus Christ and be better and better disciples. So what we need here is a visual. Okay? Now, believe it or not, that's an infinity sign. Okay, it's a little artsy. It was kind of neat how this all came together. Uh, Megan Safko on our staff uh, was telling us about the original meaning of the infinity sign was really eternity. And then she found this photograph of, I guess it was a tattoo, somebody's arm with a word on it. It had this infinity sign in it. I gave that to David Stithfold, who plays bass up in our band, and, and uh, he, he took it and kind of got artsy with it, how it worked with Cornerstone. And then Pam Hoover got a hold of it, and she took it, the pieces apart. And anyway, it was a neat process how, how that all came together. And the reason for the infinity sign is, is to show us that there's movement Picture yourself going through that kind of fill in that blank spot, and we're just going through and through that because this process is not a one-time event. It's a lifelong continuum. We never get off of this. Remember, a true disciple is a follower of Jesus who is continually being transformed into his image. And to keep the, the right perspective with all this, we need to keep Christ in the center of it. So enter the cross. There you go. This is all about continuous movement through a process. Now, what do we do to put people in that position so God can do his transforming work? Well, after weeks of study and prayer and meetings and struggles and some sleepless nights, we believed that God gave us a clear 
simple process, a strategy for an individual at Cornerstone to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ with ever-increasing glory, more and more. The team was absolutely convinced that a Christ follower should be engaged in this simple process. Otherwise, true transformation was not going to take place, at least not to the extent God desired it. We believed God was saying, now this would be church at Cornerstone. It's important for you to hear this, especially you guys have been around for a while. Very important to hear this. Cornerstone was not doing anything bad, not doing wrong stuff. It's just that God was challenging us to raise the bar. We could no longer randomly throw ministries and and, uh, events around the church just hoping something would happen, like it's going to work by default. We must be intentional with everything we do so it all has a purpose. We could no longer afford to let some groups and some ministries fall between the cracks. If it's worth doing, we are duty-bound to do it with the objective to make disciples and allow God to transform people. After all, this is what God commissioned us to do. So the design team agreed on a three-part process wherein to enroll others and ourselves And this process would be that environment that invited transformation. Now, understand that God can transform us anywhere he wants, any time, any place. But if a church is to be intentional about making disciples, what would be the best lightning rod for that transformation to happen? Here's something really interesting. I love this about the whole thing. There was no new and improved method for ministry. There was no cutting-edge, innovative ideas. (laughs) Not even a new style, working in another church or one we invented ourselves. No, it was just a process that was easy to understand and simple to align all our ministries around. So for the next few weeks... We're going to go through our three-part process, our strategy. And you'll probably find each part of the process is really not very unique. It's not unique at all. In fact, they may seem very common and ordinary to you if you've been in a healthy church environment. Not only could you find this process familiar, but you'll also notice it's almost exactly what we've been doing all along. It's just being done with more intentionality. So those of us who don't do well with change, nod your head if you're one of those. If you're one that doesn't do well with change, relax. We're not changing the direction of the church. We're just raising the bar. We want to do the same good things. We just want to do them better. Well, here it is. Here's the way our three-part strategy goes. We believe every partner in the mission of Cornerstone, which is making disciples, is a disciple being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ through this process. First of all, celebrating God. 
It's another way of saying loving God. But we're celebrating him because it's a two-way street. We love God. He loves us. He actually loved us first. That causes us to love him. The great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's part A of the great commandment. That's what this is all about. Celebrating God is all done around Cornerstone. The, the, the piece, the program that we use is this Sunday celebration. Now, that doesn't mean this is the only time you love God or sense his love for you. It's just what we pour our energy, our resources into so we can practice it. It's a practice. This is the kind of practice for heaven every Sunday morning. All right? The second piece is connecting with his people. This is part B of the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says there's no greater commandment than these two, loving God and loving people. All of our groups, doesn't matter what they used to be called, they're all now called connect groups. There's Bible studies, there's journey groups, there's social groups, there's all these groups. But they're all connect groups because the goal is to get us connected in meaningful relationships not just a casual, how you doing every Sunday morning? Meaningful relationships. This also includes ministry teams where we use our God-given talents, our gifts, our spiritual gifts to serve each other. The third piece of this is reaching out to those who are hurting and those who are missing from the kingdom of God. Jesus told a parable in the the, the people were kind of amazed in this parable that, that uh, the way the king acted towards them. They said this, the righteous will answer is what it said. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did it for me. Being involved in events that take the compassion of God out to the surrounding neighborhoods and beyond, that's how we practice reaching out. It's how we share our faith and spread the good news about Jesus Christ. As we spend the next few weeks examining these things in detail, you're going to see why each one is so vital to your Christian walk. I want to close with my presumption of your obvious question. Why? Why are we doing this, David? Why did your design team come up with some little nice package? Weren't things working just fine before? Whether you're a guest today or a regular attender, whether you're a charter member here, some of you are overdue for a spiritual journey. You haven't had your world rocked for a long time. Maybe you've never been in a situation that called out the spiritual best in you. Maybe you haven't taken a step of faith in a long time. Maybe you barely know what it feels like to jump in with both feet and say, I'm in all the way. I'm doing this for God. 
Well, I always like to leave people with kind of an application or a takeaway from messages. And this week, it's pretty much just some questions to ponder and and a challenge. This week, ask yourself, is this church? Ask yourself, could this be something that I want to get involved in and give my very best to? Is this a place and a mission that you can see yourself partnering with and experiencing the ride of your life? If questions like that give you a little tingle inside, then I want to ask you to commit to something, something really simple. I want you to just commit to attend the next four Sundays. And I want you to Keep asking questions and see what else God would whisper into your heart. Just try it. And I believe if you do, that just like that professor said, when you get to the end of your life and look back, you won't regret it. This is church. It's interesting how communion just happened to fall on this day. As you can tell from my sarcasm, I don't believe too much in coincidence. I think it was supposed to happen today. And I think sharing communion would be a great way to kind of do a little promise thing. You know, say, I'm going to not just remember what Jesus did, but I'm going to get involved with this thing. Remember... The night before Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is a symbol of my body. This is what's getting ready to happen to me. All for you. I'm giving it all up for you. I'm dying for your sins. Then he took the cup and he said, this wine, it's kind of the new contract. It's the new covenant. All the law and all that stuff, oh yeah, it's still in place, but I've taken care of it now. I'm the fulfillment of the law for you. Remember this. This is my blood. Remember when you do this. But as we remember those things, as we remember his body and his blood being shed for us, remember that he gave it all up. And like in that song, such a tiny offering to just do church like he said to do it. Tiny offering for what he did. Let that roll around in your spirit as you come forward. The ushers are going to start with the back row and come forward. And uh, just just think about it. Let me say a quick prayer before we start. God, thank you so much for for giving it all. Thank you so much for uh, having a purpose to every little detail. All that temple that you had built down to the, the... fringe on the priest's garments. Everything had a reason and a purpose and a symbol. You're such a purposeful God, and we want to be a purposeful church. We want to be purposeful Christ followers. So help us to do that. As we remember what you did for us at Calvary, help us to add to that, that we will follow you until we get to meet you in heaven. In Jesus' name, please come. Thank you.